But yeah, my name is Patrick, and um, it is my privilege and honor here uh, to bring the word uh, for us this morning. And so if you've got your Bibles, I'll get you to open up uh, to Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 7 through to verse 12. <clears throat> and um, and uh, yeah, I trust, I trust that you're there or making your way there, but I'm going I'm to begin reading that, and then we're going to jump in. Uh, to this passage and what it might tell us and speak to us this morning. So Paul says this to the church in Galatia, starting at verse 7. He says, You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself am persuaded in the Lord that you will not accept any other view, but whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. And I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. <clears throat> Your translation might say, say something else um, <clears throat> in that spot. But um, you are running well. This is a perfect opportunity for us to recap uh, because uh, for those of you who have been keeping track, which I doubt any of you have, but I have, it's been nearly, it's been nine weeks since we've been in the book of Galatians together. And um, if you know anything about nine, that's almost ten. Um, and that's an arbitrary number to just throw out there. Um, it's in no way important, only to just say it feels like it's been a long time since we've been in the series in Galatians. And so I imagine that perhaps some of what the book of Galatians is about is perhaps drifted off into the back of your memories. So let's do a quick recap of where we're at and what the thrust of the book of Galatians is. So Paul the Apostle writes the book of Galatians to the church in Galatia uh, because he's been through there. He's been through there and he's preached the gospel. He's preached Jesus Christ uh, and the salvation that he's brought about by the cross. And, and, and the people there had received the faith that received Jesus and were following him well, but then these other people had come around after Paul, um, the, these people who the uh, book of Galatians calls the Judaizers or the false teachers, um, and they came around after Paul and began sowing discord and began to teach the Galatians that, in fact, Paul's message was incomplete. You know, Paul had a lot of really good ideas, and this Jesus thing, it's good. It's, it, it really is good, but, but his message is, in fact, incomplete. In fact, he doesn't really have authority to preach the message that he's been preaching. Let us just kind of clarify some things for you. Let us fix up your theology. Let us uh, just introduce you to the fullness of this message that Paul, I'm sure if he was here, he'd probably, you know, he'd probably admit his error and fix this up with you as well, but he's not, so let us do it for you. And, and essentially, Paul finds out about this and loses it. it you know, he, he doesn't lose it, but he's, he's incensed. He's uh, quite upset because what is happening to these good people, these people who had embraced Jesus Christ, had found salvation and forgiveness of sins, and had found the one who is the bread of life, the one who is the one who gives living waters welling up from within, he's incensed because these other people had come around and had begun to shackle them with heavy chains, had begun to resubjugate them underneath 
religion and what they'd been telling these Gentile believers is that in fact to be faithful to God, to be a follower of Jesus, you in fact need to become culturally Jewish. And that means adopting the customs of culturally Jewish people, which is men, you need to be circumcised and you need to practice Sabbath days and you need to do all these sort of things in order to make sure that you're right with God. And this is what Paul is railing against, is what he calls a false gospel. And he talks about this freedom that we actually have because of what Jesus Christ has actually done for us. And so, and so Paul here in verse 7, he says, you were running well. You had received the message and you were running well. They had received the good news of the kingdom of God and the salvation that Jesus had brought them through the cross. Their lives had been transformed by faithfulness to Jesus, which brought about a freedom not only from sin, but a freedom from religion as well. From their old religious ways that had them bound up in fear, bound up in the idea that they needed to do X, Y, Z in order to actually be in right standing with God. And these false teachers had crept into the church of Galatia and started sowing this confusion. And so where we're up to right now, Paul has spent the last four chapters dismantling their arguments, dismantling their testimony against him, and demonstrating that what they're saying to the church in Galatia is simply not true. It's simply not true what these false teachers had been saying, what they'd been preaching and they'd been teaching. And we don't have time to get into all of those arguments. Um, I would just say to you, if you are interested at all, I would encourage you to go back through the sermon series. You can find it on um, YouTube and other places, I think. And you can go back and see some of those arguments that Paul actually engages with. Now, here, Paul has to address what seems to be one more accusation that has been leveled against him. And that accusation is that he now also preaches that everyone should be circumcised as well. And we'll get into why. Why... They make that why they might be able to make that accusation and why that's actually not legitimate, I believe. But I want to actually touch on something Paul says here in verse nine, and we'll get we'll get to the we'll get to the accusation against Paul. But I want I want to touch on something Paul says here in verse nine. He says, "A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough," and he makes this little comment. And so, for those of you who are unfamiliar with baking. Um, for those of you who never made your own bread, which we live in, you know, a modern age, uh, you know, who makes their own bread anymore? It's uh, wildly cost inefficient. Um, and some people are nodding at me like, oh, yes, I make my own bread. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I'll, I'll need to plead for, <laughs> plead for forgiveness later. Um, but for those of you who have embraced the wonders of the 21st age and, and buy bread at the store, um, the way that bread is made is, is you mix up a dough of flour, water, and you know, salt and all this sort of stuff, and, and you're left with a lump of dough. Now, for those of you who have eaten bread, which I'm assuming most of you had, you'll, you'll probably notice that it's not just a thick brick of dough that you're eating. It's actually, in most instances, fluffy and light, unless you're gluten-free, in which case it is that brick of... Uh, <laughs> we're just defending everybody this morning. But the way you get that fluffiness, and you get all those little air pockets and bubbles in the dough, the way you get that is you use some form of leaven. We use yeast, right? Or if you use sourdough, you have a, a dough that's gone off, quite frankly, and you mix a little bit of that dough into your big batch of dough. Somehow it works out, and you don't get food poisoning, and you get all the little nice little bubbles. Uh, but what Paul is using, why, the reason why Paul is using this example is because it's an example where you get a big batch of dough, you only need a little bit of yeast. 
You only need a little bit of yeast. And that yeast works its way through the entire batch of dough. And it affects the entire batch of dough. That little bit of yeast is the thing that causes the entire batch of dough to rise. It causes the entire batch of dough to be affected just from a little bit of yeast. Jesus would use a similar example. He would use the same analogy when he would warn his disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And what he means is beware the teaching of the Pharisees. Because to adopt a little bit of this teaching, to adopt a little bit of this teaching, it begins to affect the entirety of your life. And, and the way that Paul is using it here is not only does it the teaching accept, accept, affect the entirety of your life, but in this context, that teaching, in fact, the people who are teaching it, it begins to affect the entirety of the church. It begins to affect the entire community. And churches, and, and, and so this, this happens. It, it only takes a couple of people. It only takes a little bit of teaching. It takes a couple of people going around teaching people the wrong thing and imposing a little bit of religiosity on people, and it begins to affect the entire church. And churches experience this all the time. We've experienced this in, in, in bits and pieces. You know, you get somebody coming into your church, maybe a small group of people coming into your church, you know, you, you, do, you do communion wrong. You know, you, you, need, you need to do it this way. This is the way that honor, this is the way you do communion. Or perhaps, you know, you don't teach the Bible, you, you, you teach the Bible wrong. And look, maybe I do. Um, we'll get to that. Um, you, you know what? Your theology is wrong. Here, you need to, you need to come over here and, and abide by my theology. Or, or, you know what? The way you do music is wrong. Here's how you actually do music that is, is right. Here's how you do music right in a church. And the thing is, here's the problem with it, is in some way they're probably right. In some way, they're probably right. I look forward to that day when I stand before the Lord and I see him face to face and he shows me all the ways in which I thought I was right, but I was maybe not as right as I am right now. And if you think, well, good, one day God's going to sort you out. Look, I'm going to be honest. He's coming for you too, all right? <laughs> There's going to be a glorious moment of revelation for us all about all the things that we were so certain about and we were so right about, and the Lord's going to expand our knowledge and expand our understanding to, to the point where we're like, you know what, within the context, I felt like I was right, but you know what, probably in light of all this new information and understanding, perhaps there could have been some adjustments made. And one day that's going to happen. One day, one day, you know, that's all going to happen. For, but here's the thing. Here's the thing, is that if we allow ourselves to be enslaved to a spirit of religiosity, if we allow ourselves, if we capitulate to it, no matter what quarter it comes from, if we capitulate to it, even a little bit, it will begin to affect everybody. It begins to affect everybody. I remember learning one time, is that uh, somebody once told me, is that well, the, the most conservative element in your church, the most conservative people in your church will be the ones who get to dictate how the church worships and how the church functions. Now, it sounds like it's, it's, it was given as practical wisdom. Like, you're never going to be able to deal with these kind of people, right? But the reality is, is that's in a form of enslavement. Like, imagine, imagine for, for, for a moment, imagine for a moment, here, here's, this is an imaginary example. I've never had this happen to me, Right? 
But imagine this was the case, right? Somebody comes in here into this church and says, you know, and they're like, hey, I think you should only preach from the King James Bible. It is the only proper translation for the English language. And any other translation than the King James Bible is wrong for you to preach. And, and we, because we're well-meaning, we want to be accepting and tolerant. We, and, and we go, okay, well, look, Jim, you know, we appreciate that view. So what we're going to do to make you feel comfortable is I'm only ever going to preach from the King James Bible just for you. And we'll all accommodate to this particular view just for you. Well, how long before young people come up in the church and all they've ever heard is the King James Bible? And, they, and, and, and now they've never heard, you know, you could see how quickly by capitulating and embracing even a little bit of religiosity, even to appease somebody, even to appease somebody can quickly begin to enslave and to affect an entire group of people. What else, what other rules do we need to follow? What other things do we need to, do we need to shackle ourselves with in order to, to please the Lord? A little leaven leavens the whole bunch. Paul preaches freedom. And next week we're going to get into a sermon where, where it's actually an uncomfortable level of freedom. It's a level of freedom that even most Christians who have been in church a long time are probably uncomfortable with. And um, so buckle up for that next week. Um, and we're going to, where Paul's actually going to teach, Paul's actually going to teach how you have actual, real, true spiritual discernment about what is good and what is not so good, and how it is we should, we should operate and we should function not only in the life of the church, but in your life personally as you interact with the world. Um, but we'll get to that. I can tell you're already uncomfortable. Um, but I'll, let's answer this question. Did Paul preach circumcision after all, since that's the accusation that was made against him? Well, well, well let's, let's, just, let's just get to this, right? Because Paul, Paul says this. He says, now, brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still persecuted? So the accusation that's being made against Paul, the accusation that's being made against Paul is that Paul, in fact, still preaches circumcision. He's been writing this whole letter to the Galatians, right, saying, don't do it. In fact, if you submit yourself to the law, if you get yourself circumcised, you're required to do all of it. And that's a fool's errand because no one can keep up. No one can, no one can f properly fulfill the law in all of its meticulous commands and demands and all these sorts of things, right? Is it true that Paul preaches circumcision? And here's perhaps the evidence that Paul's enemies may have used against him. In Acts chapter 15, we have the Council of Jerusalem. And if you're not familiar with the Council of Jerusalem, it was the council that brought the church together to answer this question, what are we going to do with all these Gentile Christians coming in? They're not Jewish. They don't know our ways. And, and yet there is something about this grace that God has given in Jesus Christ which seems to suggest that they don't need to become ethnically Jewish in order to be faithful followers of Jesus and, 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 and be in right standing before God. What are we going to do with them? And, and lo and behold, the Jerusalem Council decides that, no, we are not going to force Gentile believers to get circumcised. We are not going to force them to do that. That's Acts 15. Presumably, Paul is there, given the confrontation that he talked about earlier on in the book of Galatians. Presumably, Paul is at that council. That's Acts 15. Acts 16, what happens it says Paul circumcises Timothy. And you can, you can imagine it, right? It's like a CNN hit piece. 
It's like a CNN hit piece. Here they are. They're just like, you, know, you, could imagine, you can imagine what it's like. You know, two reports like, here we have Paul, you know, best known for stirring up trouble all across the Roman Empire. Remember how he incited that riot at Ephesus? All for his incendiary views and still managed to walk, walk away scot-free because we had a corrupt Roman government. Well, here we have yet another example. Another example of this heinous man at work. We have video footage of Paul at the Council of Jerusalem publicly agreeing not to require circumcision in order to be saved. And here, and yet we have an exclusive here. We have obtained text message evidence from Paul the Apostle that the very next day he circumcised his disciple Timothy. What do we make of that? Well, Diane, I think it just goes to show that Paul is trying to have his cake and eat it too. He is so enamored with trying to win the support of those freedom-loving hippie lefties, but secretly still trying to keep his pharisaical base. A hypocrite through and through, and I don't know why anyone listens to this guy. I'm sure that's exactly how that played out. That's exactly how that played out, word for word. You have it from, <laughs> you have it from the pulpit. But this is the accusation that Paul is facing. Okay, Paul. All right, you're at the Jerusalem Council. You've been going around preaching, don't get circumcised. If you get circumcised, you're required to actually fulfill the entirety of the law. Acts 16, Paul, you circumcised Timothy. What's up? The reality is this, is Paul made it very clear what his missionary standpoint was when it came to different cultures and different peoples and what he would do in order to reach the lost, the lengths that he would go in order to reach the lost. And he does that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in uh, verse 19, he says this. He says, although I am free from all and I am not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, like one without the law. Though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. To win those without the law. Uh, to, to the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that I may be every... I may, by every means possible, save some. Now, I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. You see, Paul had a very deliberate missionary strategy is that he would attempt to remove any and all stumbling blocks and unnecessary offense that he could to the cultures and the people that he was ministering to so that they could more freely open their minds and their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reality is this, is that Timothy, Timothy had a father who was Greek and a mother who was Jewish, which meant when he grew up, he was never circumcised as a Jew. And so Paul, in taking Timothy, says, hey, Timothy, if you want to actually minister to the Jewish people who are, by rights, your people, it'd probably be best that you get circumcised. I'm adding a little bit of poetic license there, but my suspicion is that's what's happening. I don't think for a second Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, because you're half Jewish, you need to actually be circumcised to be right with God. I don't think for a second that, that is true. So here we see Paul defending this claim, and he raises this very good point. If Paul is actually still preaching circumcision, why is he still being persecuted? If Paul is on board with the message of the Judaizers, 
If he's come to the table now and he's actually now preaching this gospel, which for the first four chapters of Galatians he called false, why is he still being persecuted? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. But Paul, to the best of his ability, becomes like those he's ministering to in order to avoid unnecessary offending them. Um, If you're looking for a great example of this in action... I would commend to you a biography of a man named Hudson Taylor who started the China Inland Mission. And one of the things that was unique about Hudson Taylor in his day and age is that when he went to China as a missionary, he began to adopt the, the, the dress of the Chinese people. He grew his hair out and he, and he dressed like a Chinese person. Whereas before that, when missionaries would go to foreign lands, they would come as colonial you know, colonizers. They would come, they would dress in their English clothes and expect people to come into church and act like English people and all these sorts of things, whereas Hudson Taylor took a different approach. He did his best to become like the Chinese people, the, the best that he could to be like the culture around him, so that when they saw him, they, they, they didn't have to get stumbling over the fact that he was dressed like an Englishman and he looked like every other guy carrying a gun who was trying to subjugate them at the time. So I would commend to you um, his biography. It's called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Um, If you're into reading and into biographies, I would definitely commend that one to you. But Paul raises a very good point. Paul raises a very good point in in his defense here. He says, why am I still being persecuted? If it's the case, if it's the case that he does preach circumcision, then the offense of the cross has been abolished then the offense of the cross has been abolished. I want to talk a little bit this morning about the offense of the cross. We need to understand that for a lot of people, the message of the cross is offensive. For the people, for the Jewish people at that time, the people that Paul was wrestling back and forth with, the cross was offensive because it it meant... It meant that God was operating in a way and was willing to actually be in relationship with people outside the ethnic Jewish people. It meant that he was actually, he was actually willing to be in relationship without all the religiosity that went along with it. For the Jews, it was offensive because it did away with the necessity of circumcision. For the Greeks, for the Greeks that Paul ministered to, the cross was an offense. Because it did not at all accord with Greek wisdom that God himself, that a God should die for a man. That that, that, that just doesn't make any kind of sense to Greek wisdom. That a God would allow himself to be killed by men made of dirt. For many of those who are strong in the ways of this world, the cross is offensive because it belays their own sense of self-reliance. Perhaps you've met people like this that are so sure of themselves that to humble themselves and actually come and receive forgiveness and grace, however open God's arms are, however wide His arms are, no matter how much God does, they can't seem to allow themselves to be humbled and and receive forgiveness as a free gift. For those who perhaps are super uh, spiritual, perhaps in the ways of New Age or anything like the cross is an offense because there is no amount of spiritual attainment that is needed in order to be embraced by the love of God. 
The love of God meets us right where we're at, no matter what our level of spiritual experience is. For those who live according to the post-enlightenment principles of rationality and the scientific method, which if you are not aware, most of you do, you, you, you may not be aware that you are subject and have been shaped so much by the culture, whether you realize it or not, that, that so many of us actually live according to these principles, whether they're right or wrong. And I'm not going to get into that into this, in, in this particular uh, sermon. But for those who live according to post-enlightenment principles of rationality and scientific method, the cross is offensive because they might have to be okay with spiritual realities that extend beyond the abilities of the scientific method to prove. To left-wing woke movement, the cross is offensive because it says that God can forgive colonizers, that God can forgive slave owners, that God can forgive the worst of sinners, and that He's willing to. To the right-wing conservatives, the cross is offensive because it shows that God loves and cares for LGBTQI plus people even in the midst of their confusion and even perhaps destructive way of life. That they are still people worthy of love, worthy of care, worthy of being treated like image bearers of God, no matter how much they might attack, how much they might slander, how much they might deride those who are in the church. In fact, the cross is offensive to anybody who would wage war, be it cultural or kinetic. Because Jesus taught us a nonviolent kingdom and a kingdom that advances not by subjugation, but by transformation. And I'm concerned that much of the church has lost sight of the fact that God never needed the government to advance his kingdom. So many Christians are concerned about getting control of the government. We need, to get in, we need to get into the power. We need to grab hold of that steering wheel. We need to steer this ship. Usually not students of history that every time the church has gotten control of that wheel, they have destroyed the lives of the people under their care. But then think about the times when we look back and we say these were times where the church thrived. These were times when the church grew. These were times when the church was powerful and the kingdom was advancing. The church never needed the Roman Empire to be on board for it to flourish and thrive. The Chinese underground church does not need the Chinese government in order to be growing and thriving. The Iranian church does not need the Iranian government in order to flourish and thrive. We pray for peaceful governments. We pray for peaceful governments that will allow us to live in peace. But remember, remember that the kingdom was never advanced by political power. And God never needed a kingdom of this world in order to advance His. Ultimately, the offense of the cross is that it requires us to give up all our preconceived ideas about how God should be or what God should do, and receive a revelation of who God actually is in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, with all the culture war that goes on in our day and age, all the fracturing and all the division, I'm reminded of that passage in the Old Testament when Joshua, when Joshua is about to take Jericho, and he comes out with his armies, 
and, he, and he says he sees before him this angel. It's a commander of the Lord's armies. Stands before him. And, and Joshua's like, are, are you, you with us? Are you, are you with them? You know, obviously he's a bit taken back. He wants to make sure that uh, he's not about to have to fight this guy. Right? And the commander of the Lord's army says, neither. And may I suggest to us that God is less concerned with our cultural wars and our cultural divisions and our political interests than we might believe him to be. That God loves humanity on both sides of the aisle and he's willing to work with any who will come to him humbly and in faith and receive forgiveness and grace. So in closing here, I'd actually just like us to reflect on a hymn. And if, and if you would, I would love for you to actually close your eyes. Um, because I think this hymn beautifully articulates how it is we come to Jesus and how it is we come to the cross. First verse says this, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. And, and could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All of it for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. And so nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless, God, I look to thee for grace. Feeling foul to the fountain I fly, that you would wash me, Savior, or I die. And while I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, and when I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne, O oh, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Hannah, if you could come back. It's really important for us to remember how easily religiosity can creep into the Christian life how easily it can creep into the church, how easily a little leaven works its way in to the loaf. So my prayer for each and every single one of you is that you have a fresh revelation of the cross, that you would walk free this morning, that you would walk free from the power of sin because of what Jesus has done, that you would walk free from the power of religion because of what Jesus has done and that you would find in him a good and perfect savior and I would encourage you I would encourage you that as you come to Jesus come to him on his terms rather than yours you'll only find that his are better than yours so I'm going to pray and what we're going to do